Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 24 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that might suddenly go silent in the middle of this episode due to gale force winds. And it really might. Our power has been going on and off all day, so if it's just Will, Will, if I, if I disappear, you can uh, sing us a song, maybe. It, is it a soliloquy or an aside when it's just me? <laughs> but I'm technically talking to an audience, I guess. I guess, yeah, that's uh, yeah, it would be a soliloquy. So there we are. Yeah, it's it's like 50 mile an hour winds here. So, and our power has been on and off. Our lights are flickering as we speak. So we'll, we'll see how we go. The British have weird names for their storms. Like in America, it's like Hurricane, you know, uh, Irma or stuff like that. And then England, it's just like Large Storm Charles or something like that. I think this is actually Storm Derek. That is not a great name for a storm. Yeah, I think it's Storm Derek or Gavin or something. <laughs> Very wet blanket names. Yeah, uh, maybe I'm wrong. I can't remember. It's got. It's, it is a name, something like that. No offense to my friend Gavin. <laughs> Gavin, <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Anyway, how are you, Will? Great. As I was saying just before we came online, spring has sprung in Northern California and everyone is happy about it. It's been the wettest winter in in generations. We have literally wiped out almost a decade's worth of drought in the space of six months. And that is not an over-exaggeration. That's great. They've lifted drought warnings almost everywhere across uh, at least the Northern Bay, but like uh, Northern California. So yeah, we're we're enjoying... Some balmy 63 degree Fahrenheit weather. Well, you're in a <laughs> but it's going to be like it. 70 tomorrow. So I'm going to wow. have a vibe about it. Wow. Yeah, enjoy it. Enjoy it while it lasts. So I, I know it's been a while since we've recorded, and I apologize for that, folks. It's just uh, I've been back traveling, although not as much as, as last year. But uh, yeah, things have been pretty busy lately. But here we are. We're, we're back, and we're, we're getting close to the end of this, uh, this first trip around the horn, which is very satisfying. I know, I know. I've already started thinking about uh, – no, let's put it this way. I started thinking about next A through Z, and then I realized when we got to you, which is what we're today, uh, that we should probably focus on the, what we got to get through to get get through the rest of the alphabet because yeah. there are some doozies there, coming. There really are. And this one was a struggle as well, but I think actually it's going to be kind of an interesting and pithy topic, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, it's um, it's – it's uh, where these last few are not are not going to be easy. So if you have recommendations for uh, the last few letters of the alphabet, they would be great. Except maybe W. I feel confident about W. Yeah, I feel confident about W. And and while some, a few audience members did reach out with their thoughts on on you, uh, you guys are super niche. Uh, like I don't know who who was it who said something uh, I don't have in front of me, but it was like, oh yeah, there's this underwater sea grape that begins with a U. I'm like, come on, that's man. what I said. That's what that's what I mentioned in the, at the end of the last episode, or maybe the episode before. But someone else said that. I think someone else said that on on Twitter as well. But like, it's good. The Japanese the the sea grape they're delicious. But an entire hour long episode on something mm, that yeah, I that might never be uh, a little harder to 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 justify. <laughs> Uh, so you said you've been traveling, uh, obviously the Mexico, uh, city attache episode went up and, and I mentioned this offline that it's probably the best thing that you and Greg have ever done in your collective lives. Thank you. It's absolutely stunning. Thank you. Yeah. We had uh, fun doing it and we ate and we ate and we ate and we ate. And you ate a lot of tacos. I, I did see one comment, which was like, this isn't a travel guide. This is how to take a bus to a taco. Yeah, that, uh, I didn't see that. I like that one. This, Cause it's, it's true. 
I think I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I think it might have been some other uh, other other critiques, but uh, if you haven't seen it, go 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 watch it. It's it's uh, it's fantastic. I actually shared it around work, and they're like, like who was the production team on this? I'm like, eh, some people. Yeah, <laughs> we had fun. We had fun. But thank yeah. you for those words. I'm 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 pleased with how it turned out. Yeah. Um, so in regards to the last episode, uh, it being tacos and we just talking about Mexico, uh, I got some good feedback from, from folks, uh, specifically around tacos. Um, our friend Joel Candia down in, down in Australia, um, excellent episode on tacos. We don't get much of the authentic stuff here in Perth, but my local gourmet supermarket, think of a mini Trader Joe's makes their own fresh, uh, sans lard, uh, sans lard. So they're always better with, with with the lard, but uh, he shared a video and it's pretty impressive. It's uh, he's picking up some some tortillas, but uh, through a glass window you can see uh, a conveyor belt of fresh tortillas being made on premises. So I'd rather you have them on premises without lard than having to have them shipped from miles away and they're not as good over uh, that time. I think that that's yeah, I agree, I agree with that. I, th- I mean, lard isn't a deal breaker. It's it does make them better. But it, it's not as not having the lard is not a deal breaker. So, and I think, as you say, fresh would would without lard would trump crappy with lard. That's cool that you can get that. Yeah, absolutely. And then our our resident uh, race car driver, Ferro Range, um, he went to. I was listening to the episode, uh, and I think maybe even inspired by some of the more uh, adventurous tacos that you had had in Mexico City. He went to Arturo's in uh, in Pasadena on Fair Oak and Bellevue. Uh, so if you want to go check it out. And he had uh, pork stomach, uh, beef intestines, and cabeza tacos. And they all look fantastic. And uh, he said the... The tripas, the, the tripe was uh, just very salty without much taste. Maybe I added the wrong sauce. I don't know. I'm glad these organ meats uh, – sorry. I'm glad to see these organ meats from a taco truck. I've only ever had them in Asian dishes. It's my first time enjoying uh, eating them in a Latino style. Most sort of you know working class f- f- end of every culture does utilize um, you know the the tripe and and the innards and and as they call them in England the you know uh, what do they call them I'm drawing a blank on the word that they use awful thank you uh, you know we all have that in our in our culinary wheelhouse I just feel like a lot of people are a little too nervous to try them yeah I think so too I think they're they're kind of grossed out by it was a crossword clue today as well viscera is your in insight um people are grossed out by what they are and but i think if you can even tongue people are grossed out by but i think if you can if you disconnect that part of your brain for a second and just eat you will never ever and you only have to make that leap once once you yeah exactly once you you know the the deliciousness will absolutely overrule any yeah but it's guts in your in your brain you just have to do it once yeah, and I think that like while it's not technically um, uh, awful or viscera, a good entry level thing to get over the sort of uh, new kind of food, I think is bone marrow. Bone marrow, you get it in things like bone marrow uh, butter or bone marrow in burgers. But like if you get like one of those femurs cross-sected with like and they've been broiled with the, the and you put it on toast, that is just weird enough. For you to realize, wow, this is incredibly tasty, and then go try some more adventurous yeah. stuff. Yeah, I, I think so too. And you will be rewarded with with flavors and textures that you will never forget. And I, and I get tripe isn't for everybody, or tripas isn't for everybody, but it uh, it can be a good. What do you say? 
delivery vector vector yeah it's funny we were we were, at a, we were at a hot pot place yesterday for lunch like a real like you know proper um you know induction cookers on the table kind of place and uh there's like eight of us and we way over ordered we had like I don't know, like 50 dishes. But uh, one of my friends who – coworkers I work with who has been going to Chinatown with two of our Chinese coworkers and really like taking the the bull by the horns on adventurous eating, he started getting into tripe. And then someone ordered pig intestines and it was hilarious. It was like, oh, give me the tripe. And it was like, what's that? Pig intestines. Get that away from me. I was like, they're so close. Yeah. They're basically the same thing. Yeah, it's such a psychological barrier in so many cases. But I, I, I I'm a, I'm a fan, I, and I, I was the same way for a long time. But I just had to have it in the right delivery vector, and I am, yeah, I'm sold forever. But yeah, these are these look these look great. Yeah, next time I'm, I don't. I mean, I'm. I, I find myself down in Pasadena occasionally. Um, more so in a previous life, uh, than I do now, but, um, I may have to go check this place out if I know where it is. I, I have to, I have the exact intersection, so I have to figure it yeah, out. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, cool. A little bit broader to some of our older episodes, uh, Chris, uh, Ratcliffe, Chris, Rat, at, at Chris Ratcliffe was talking about, um, the supplies episode and he sent us a screenshot of, uh, the side-by-side comparison of uh, lodge skillets. And he said, wow, you aren't kidding in the price difference uh, on lodge skillets. Mind you, this will be my first ever piece of cast iron skillet. Thanks again for the recommendation. So let us know. That's two people we've turned over to the dark side of cast iron skillet. So oh, just cast iron in general. So let us know how you're getting on. And it was $14.90 for a 10.5-inch skillet at the Amazon in the U.S. and the Amazon in England. Uh, was twenty seven pounds ninety nine for the exact same thing. Yeah, and you know it has to come over here, and there's VAT and, and tax and all that stuff, but it is exponentially more expensive, which is such a shame because yeah. they are a value brand, and they're you know they last forever. It will last. He also forever. went on to he also went on to say, uh, you know, thanks for reading my tweet out in the last episode. Uh, now di- diving into sorry, now delving into a wor- world whole world of instant pot recipes nice. and he's moving his food lab uh copy from the back of the bookshelf to the front uh, as it always should you know those yes. are those are our first go-to reference points i would i would uh venture to say yes yes although i think i have a, a rival now i got uh i got brave tart uh while i was over in the u.s which is the tagline for the book is iconic american desserts and it's by yeah. stella parks who and this book she won the James Beard Award for it and it was a New York Times bestseller. Kenji wrote the forward for it, and it's it's everything. It's it's baking, it's cakes, but it's also things like here's how you make all of the um, Girl Scout cookies. Here's how you make Nilla wafers. Here's how you make Fig Newtons. Uh, here's how you. When did when did you get it? I got February. Okay, so. I thought I'd seen it at your house before, but obviously not. So I don't know who has this that I've seen in passing uh, contact me because I've always thought, as I said to you this offline, it looks like a GCSE textbook. I think maybe you're thinking of a different cover because... No, it does. I got the the screenshot right in front of me. I don't know why. It just looks so... Like, maybe it's the typeface or the font or something. It just just looks like... Like you know, when they have maths books, but they want to make them fun, so they put cookies on the front That's of it. Funny. Like that. Yeah, I know. I, it is an outstanding book, and the thought behind it uh, about through every recipe, I've just you know, even things like how to make um, McDonald's apple pies. 
Wow. Yeah, and you know, pop tarts, uh, and just I and the, the quality is just so so strong. So yeah, I that's we've been using that a lot in our house. I'm woefully um, unskilled in in the dessert world. That's that's an area of cooking that I have never really ventured into. So. If you think it's, you know, so I think we've talked about this before. I'm good because I learn the rules and then adapt the rules to how I feel what I have. My wife, Kate, she's very good at baking because it's very methodical. You cannot mess around with the numbers and you get what you get. It's a math problem. And and I see cooking more as an art. The old adage, which is, yeah, cooking is an art, but baking is a science. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. You you can't you can't eyeball unless you are gifted um patissiere baking you have to you have to have a a scale a digital scale that's that's accurate you have to have an oven that's at the right temperature otherwise you know you you that doesn't work it doesn't work yeah absolutely um and then i did want to touch uh, on john young uh, john young sorry at 1jy you are a man about town it seems because you tweeted at us a great recommendation from at Mastication nation uh pleasant lady ja bing which Jan bing, yeah. we talked about jen bing in Lo in london which is the hole in the wall sort of crepe filled with everything under the sun uh, a few episodes ago um, and he took a photo there of him eating a, a, a very green and uh, a very fresh looking uh, dish so he said that he had the vegetables and the wife and his wife had the pork oh, yeah. so seems like the recommendations getting around um, I, I'm next time I'm in London I have to try this out yeah no it was very good yeah Greg in fact I Greg and I met up uh right before he went on his uh his holidays at um Spitalfield we met up at Spitalfields which is a such a gem and that's where the the kind of semi-permanent uh pleasant lady is and I had to it was difficult to make a decision to go try somewhere else and not just go straight back to her so I'm glad somebody else has uh, realized the 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 awesome power of a fully operational Jianping. <laughs> but talking of the the awesome power of things that we've mentioned on this episode, Mr. John Young, you also made it up to, and this made my day. I, mean, I, I was, I was, I think it was like last weekend or something, and I'm just looking at my 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 phone, and all of a sudden I get a, an alert from Mr. Craig McCormick, McCormick sorry, uh, at Glen Affric, uh Beers, and it's a photo of him and John, and he said. So you guys will never believe this. I met one JY, John, who knew me from my mentions on the podcast. That's and, so uh, Hashtag literal great. small world. Uh, that is amazing. I can't believe that. And yeah, I'm just looking at the picture now. Amazing. I hopefully you guys had a number of, 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 uh, of beverages. But this is, this, is, this is our podcast, bringing people together yeah. all over the United Kingdom. Uniting people through food. And and beer exactly. in this case. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah, um, Glen Affric, I'm I'm such a huge fan of theirs. Even though I stopped drinking, I still drink my non-alcoholic beer from my beautiful Glen Affric beer mug or glass. <laughs> hey guys, make a non-alcoholic beer, please. And, there you go. And I'll tell you why in a second. Actually, that it brings us on rather rather nicely to what are you drinking on this spring day? What am I drinking on this fine spring day? Well, I am switching it up a little bit, and I am drinking Prosecco. Uh, nice. Mio Neto Prosecco. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, clocks have changed, so it's actually we're recording a little later than we usually do. Oh, that's right. And Ours it's, have not. it's sunny. 
um, and a little bit of Prosecco in the early afternoon is, I thought was appropriate on this lovely day. So I'm having a glass. Is that any good? I mean, it's six ninety nine from Trader Joe's. So hey, you know take what? That out what you will. You don't. Uh, That's fine. It's it's a brute. It's a little not brutey. It's a bit sweetie. Most I guess. most prosecco is around that price point, anyways. At least in this country. Yeah, it's a it's. I don't know. Trader Joe's for those in the U.S. Uh, can attest to this. That I don't know what they've done, and maybe they're following the Charles Shaw model. But it's not their own stuff. You can buy some some fairly decent sparkling wines well under twelve dollars. And I bought like a Magnum, you know, a while ago. It's just a joke, and it costs eleven dollars. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Prosecco and cava that we get prosecco from Italy, cava from Spain um, that we that we get here. I mean, if you pay, you can get a damn good bottle for under ten quid easily. A variety, and however you like them, brute or or sweet or and everything in between. I'll tell you this. I'm I'm drinking my nanny state, uh, as always. Well, not as always. I like it. Um, here's the thing that I found. I was recently in California, and it is very difficult to find decent non-alcoholic beer in the U.S. I even went to Bethmo and had a poke around and chatted to it to to the guys there. It all tastes the same, like nothing. It's 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 gross, skunky water, like a like a Bex Blue. The Claus Tallers. Uh, actually, I'll come back to them in a second. All the ones I tried, um, all the big American breweries are making them, and they all taste the same, and they're all really, really, really disappointingly bad. Here, it's been becoming more and more trendy to develop non-alcoholic beers. As I said, Adnams have got that great one with Marks and Spencers. Nanny State have got two they're working on. Claus Taller actually have five, but they are very difficult to find. Uh, I went to an ale house in my hometown called the First Street Ale House in Livermore, California. And I asked, they have, I don't know, maybe 20 beers on tap, something like that, maybe even more than that, uh, and several beers not on tap. And I said, what have you got non-alcoholic? Expecting for them to go, <laughs> pussy. But they did not. They <laughs> said, oh, actually, we have a few. But I said, I want something that actually tastes like beer. And he's like, ah, the new Klaus Taller is good. And they have this one called the Klaus Taller Dry Hopped, and it was it was pretty good. So that's that's the only decent beer I had when I was in California for nearly ten days. Um, I have noticed that over the last I'm I'm in advertising, so I notice these trends a lot. Um, over the last two months, there has been a massive spike in advertising dollars being put towards the major brands doing non-alcoholic. But it's not that they're doing new beers. It's that they're marketing the old beers to a more on-the-go young audience. That's the first thing. Yeah. Second thing was that the BBC Food Show did a fantastic low-to-no-alcohol beer episode about a month and a half ago. Mm. And I only I only listened to it like a week and a half ago because uh, I just bank them for when I'm traveling for work. And it was really interesting. There are a couple of these alliances that like get together and do low alcohol, uh, like nights at pubs. And that, that's not really what I'm the point. There's this other guy who was saying, we want to be the either the beginning of your night or the end of the night. And we only serve less than 2% alcohol uh, beers or zero alcohol beers. And then talking about whether or not they do brewed to have very, 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 very minimal alcohol or just regular beers that then have alcohol removed. And the alcohol being removed process 
never works. I mean, it works and it's mass produced, but it's terrible. So you kind of have to meet in the middle and have a 0.5 to 1.5% beer, which legally, technically, I wouldn't even, I mean, most countries don't even classify that as, as an alcohol, uh, to have anything that resembles beer. And they specifically called out the Adnan's, Adnan's one, the Marks and Spencer's one, as being a front runner for the entire country. I I believe it. Uh, it was it it was good. It was really good. And I'm not expecting I'm not expecting people to carry them at all. Uh, non alcoholic beers in bars. I mean, you only have limited shelf space. But I think you will find the if because you, you can sell them at the same price. In fact, nanny state is effing expensive, and and you can sell them at the same price as a beer to people like me. And there is a growing number of people like me. I think who who would pay the same for a beer and just like you know want to want to drink it as well but uh yeah they touched upon that in the episode and about how drinking amongst the generation below me so the under 30s are it's it's the lowest it's ever been and one of the things i thought was hilarious was you know people are getting social they're, in, they're not going to pubs to interact social media blah, blah 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 but the big one was it's not seen as counterculture to drink uh, like as our parents, like their parents' generation, who are ten years older than me, uh, or fifteen years older than me, are the ones that did sneak out behind the bike sheds and and have a you know tizer filled with vodka kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And now that's not seen as 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 um you know rebelling. Rebelling is not drinking. So you know that's why I think that the, the it's to market a non-alcoholic beer is smart. Yeah, and uh, and it's you know there's you can get non-alcoholic gin here. I don't even bother with any mm. any of those things, and. I, I, because I don't really drink that much gin anyway, uh, or anything like that. I tell you what I did try just cause I was interested. I tried Freshenay who are a big producer of, of Kava, very good Kava. Uh, they make an, a, a non-alcoholic sparkling wine and I got, I was like, oh, I'll give it a whirl. It was fucking disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was so, so sweet. Uh, and sweet, sweet, sparkling grape juice, sweet, it tasted more like elderflower, which I actually don't mind. But it was it was almost like syrupy sweet, uh, not 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 my jam at all. So I think uh, I'm just gonna stick with the beer. But but talking about uh, the worst drink I've had in a long time, what was the what's been the best thing you've eaten since we last recorded? So it's been a while. So there's been a couple of things that uh, have popped up. Uh, I will say that the most unique thing I've eaten uh, since we last recorded are Rocky Mountain Oysters. Oh, you finally had a Rocky Mountain Oyster. What? Yeah, so I have to go to Denver a lot. And I was out there a few weeks ago and we went to the Buckhorn Exchange, which is unbelievably kitsch. And un- it's not necessarily that touristy. I mean, it is, but it's not in an area that is massively touristy in Denver. It's uh, Denver's oldest uh, restaurant. Um, and it's, you walk in and it's like... <laughs> That scene from Ace Ventura 2 when he walks into the room with all the stuffed heads on the wall and it's like, ah, this is a lovely room of death uh, because there's literally hundreds of, of mounted uh, woodland creatures on the wall. Um, yeah. And for those who do not know, Rocky Mountain Oysters are not oysters. They are the uh, cones of a uh, of a bowl, which are then cut, pounded out, deep fried and taste like kind of grizzly chicken. <laughs> grizzly chicken. So you weren't a fan. No, they tasted fine. Like, I mean, I, 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 <clears throat> if you gave me them and some like Tyson chicken nuggets, I probably couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> well, at least you tried it. 
I'm guessing yeah, that wasn't was, the best thing that you've had. No. So the best thing I had was uh, a few days after we recorded last. Uh, it was my birthday, and and Kate, my wife, had found this this place uh, called Anaviv's Table, and it is in Richmond, California, in the middle of absolutely nowhere. It, it's in the same sort of industrial unit as a welding <clears throat> a welding shop. Um, and we got dropped off by the Uber and the Uber guy was like, are you sure we should be dropping you here after dark kind of thing? Uh, it was a catering company that decided to do one night events, like so one seating per night for like three or four nights a week. Uh, and it's, you pay a ticket and you pay like $125 and it's everything's included, you know, food, alcohol, whatever. And there's a big table in, in this one room and it seats 12 people. And you go and you have a host uh, or hostess who is going to be basically walking you through everything. And it's very convivial dinner. It's basically a dinner party. And then you get taken into the kitchen and they've made some, you know, um, it's a full functioning like high-end kitchen. Uh, Some oysters and some pickles and some, you know, crazy cheeses and charcuteries. And you can then take a tour of their facilities and see what they're working on. And then you sit back down and and have uh, a four-course meal, each paired with a fantastic wine, which just keeps on coming and coming. And also you get the cocktail when you arrive and that kind of stuff. And the one, first of all, the food was fantastic. Um, The chef was this wonderful young um, uh, female chef who used to work work at Beowulf, which is now called Wolf, and she was the head grill chef there. And so I've eaten there for years and never knew she was the the cook there, and now she's the head chef at this place. And it's only two people in the kitchen, her and an assistant. And the great thing about it is when you're done, you're chatting to the other people, you just leave. There's nothing else you got to deal with because everything's paid for, tips paid for. You just have a great dinner party and then leave. And we're doing it again in April with with some fam- friends and family. But like that was hands down the best thing. A wonderful um, uh, fennel soup, um, a, a pasta dish with uh, with clams, uh, a lamb uh, lamb rib on on some palm free uh, some palm. Uh, what's the what's the fancy name for mashed potatoes? Whatever it's called, fancy p- mashed potatoes. <laughs> uh, and, and then a chocolate cake to finish, and it was wonderful and so that has stuck with me for the last three four five weeks uh, were you were you trying to go for palm puree yes <laughs> there you go palm puree yes uh yeah so on a viv's table in in richmond california if you get a chance uh go for it but if you make it crowded and it go price goes up I'll, I'll personally blame every one of you that goes <laughs> <laughs> nice how about how about you alex well uh yeah i i think the best thing that I ate was was a real sh- surprise to me. Uh, like I said, I was in California and I had some some great food as I always do. I had my wonderful In and Out and some good Mexican food as always. But uh, again, I was at this ale house with seventy five people. Maybe not. It felt like seventy five. I think it was probably about fifteen. But on the menu, they do great like just bar American sports bar food. Simple, but but tasty. And then on the, on the menu, they had, uh, their burgers, uh, but you could order an impossible burger, which is the, the no meat, the burger, the vegan burger. And I've, I, I, I've always wanted to try one. So I was like, you know what? Why not? Give me, give me uh you know, a bacon cheeseburger, but with an impossible burger. And he's like, you know, it has bacon on it, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing it. Cause I'm 
I don't eat meat. Quite, quite the contrary. But I've heard so many things about this that try, try it. Let me, let me try it. How do you want it? What difference does it make? It's made out of vegetables. He's like, well, that's actually not true because uh, it does kind of make a big difference. Bleed. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it actually does bleed. So it was frigging delicious. It was, I could absolutely not tell the difference. Uh, it's made entirely out of plants. Uh, pea protein. Yeah, pea protein and, and and soy. And they've got this ingredient, which makes it look like it's uh, it's bleeding if you ask for it cooked medium or whatever. But I, I said, this is clearly not, I wasn't trying to be like, oh my God, I can't believe it's not butter. Uh, I honestly thought they brought me the wrong thing. I wouldn't have cared because I'm not vegetarian or vegan. So I would have been like, ugh, whatever, it's just a burger. But he's like, no, I swear, that's that's the real deal. And he's like, look how it breaks when you, he's like, just break your burger in half. And sure enough, it breaks slightly differently. But it tasted char-grilled. It tasted meaty and fatty and satisfying. I couldn't. I couldn't get over. Uh, and I've had a lot of vegetarian burgers in my days, mainly because I've been forced uh, to have them, and they're almost universally disgusting. This was yeah, th- extraordinary. Pretty much anyone that does burgers as a as a core compart uh, part of their menu, you'll find impossible meat on there. Um, and I am all for this, even if it's like in your case where you put, you know. Uh, cow juice and and bacon products on top of it, like you know cheese and bacon. Uh, just the fact that you can have something that is not as ecologically, emotionally difficult to uh, justify eating burgers like made of beef constantly. Like if you switched out one out of every three with a beyond with a impossible burger, that's a good step on the way of like uh, reducing your carbon out uh, footprint. So uh, the fact that they finally got it good, I would love to see them try to do a smash burger. Again, not the brand, the actual style. Yeah, well, this is pretty much it. Pretty much was because they coconut, they covered in coconut oil to give it the crisp, right? And it worked. It worked. I was so impressed. I, I was so impressed. I saw that they, they saw that they tweeted you, um, when yeah. you when you raved about it. So if you guys, uh, Impossible Burgers, if you want to sponsor the, the next go. episode, let us know. Bill Gates was one of their investors, and Makes David sense. Chang is a, is a fan. So yeah, I was impressed. But I will also take a, a, just ten seconds to to tell you about. The worst thing I had, and it's probably the worst thing I've had in a long time. I was in uh, Astana, Kazakhstan uh, two weeks ago, which was fantastic. What a great country. What a great city. Uh, I'm, I'm not talking politically or anything else like that. There's obviously, I'm not, this is a food show. I'm not getting into that right now. But I thought it was very interesting and the people were very friendly to me. Uh, so friendly, actually. Their customer service is very strong. I was in, I stayed at the Ritz-Carlton and I was jet lagging because I'd come from America, had a night in London and then went on to, to Kazakhstan. And so I was like the first person there for breakfast at 6am because I was bored. And I had a cup of coffee, I was reading a local paper and the very friendly and effusive waitress said, is this your first time in Kazakhstan? Yes. Oh, oh my God. Oh, I, wait here, wait here. I, I, I have to bring you our national food. You, you have to try it all. And I was like, oh, Okay, cool. The national edition in Kazakhstan is horse meat and um, uh, dumplings. It's fine. I had it the night before. Um, but but for the, she brought me horse salami, uh, horse sausage. They were both fine. Their little the horse salami was a little dry. Like if you imagine sliced roast beef that had been like the beef had been cooked, kind of quite well done, and then you're eating it a couple of days later. 
But then she's like, and this is our national drink. And it was, it, it looked like milk. And I don't drink milk. I, not, I just don't like it. And it doesn't really agree with my delicate sensibilities. Never has. So I just don't drink it. And I was like, okay, is it, is it dairy? And she's like, kind of. It's horse milk. And I was like, cool. Uh, and it's called, uh, it's called kumis. K-U-M-I-S. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'm just going to take one for the team. This lady's been so kind. She's obviously so proud. And she just stood there with like her <laughs> hands together, rubbing her hand, like with a big smile on her face, wanting me to experience all these wonderful Kazakh dishes. And I took a sip of it. I took, I took a big chug of it because I wanted to be enthusiastic. And I was like, hmm, is it, is it fermented? And she's like, yes, it's for all fermented, for fermented horse's milk. Great. Uh, I will tell you that it tasted like warm, off, melted brie. Oh. Yeah. That. Ugh. So tangy, but not in a good way. Really, really <laughs> thick and creamy. It's a bit like kefir, if you've ever had kefir. Uh, I'm sure pe- a lot of people love it. It's just not, not my thing. And I sent our other brother a message going... This this was not my favorite thing. He's like, I didn't know that horses had milk, <laughs> and I was like, Andrew, they're they're a mammal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, how is he that old so, and not know that? So yeah, that was a, that was an interesting experience. Anyway, we've we've we were nearly halfway through the episode, and we haven't touched on what we are we're talking about. We did have a lot. We're way past halfway. Uh, we had a long conversation, Will and I, back and forth about what we we're going to do here, and there was unagi, udon, a lot of the good. Th- things came up but one of the things we kept coming back to or unleavened was another one was this wonderful word umami such a fun word to say exactly umami. yes i kept on saying that's what we're doing for our episode to a co-worker and he's like what you say about my mama <laughs> <laughs> that's quite good no dude no dude i'm talking about umami umami if we're talking about umami Yes, yes. And this is one is an interesting one because there's so much recent science about it and so much bad information out there. And I think <laughs> I, I, we'll get onto this in a second, but it's odd to think that like bitterness or sweetness or sourness could have a lobbying group saying it's going to kill you. I know that sugar has that, but like a flavor type or a base taste. Uh, like umami is a, is a bit weird that people are so anti it, but we'll get on to that. So uh, I think we should start right at the beginning with how your tongue tastes and how we taste things. So I'm sure you were taught this. How many things can our tongue taste? Five. Which are? Uh, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami. So umami is a recent one. We only added that in the last like couple decades or so. Yeah, I but, certainly wasn't taught uh, umami at school. Exactly. That's kind of some some crazy voodoo stuff. Uh, so it was the original four, sweetness, sourness, bitterness, and saltiness. And it kind of made me think, we were taught that like as rote. And I kind of thought of it as, oh, these are like the base um, colors, like the primary colors right. that you use to then meld to make all different kinds of, um, you know, colors. So like, you know, yellow and green make whatever uh and so on and so forth but that's not the case like our our flavor our tongues can discern spice 
astringency, starchiness, fat. And those are not combinations of the four plus umami that we talked about. So while the five that we're talking about today and umami being the most recent are the sort of widely accepted, I do want to caveat it early on and say that your tongue can do a lot more. It's a little like the forces that your body can feel. Um, you know, the we're, there are more than the, just the the initial forces. There's lots of different things that we can interpret. And it's one of these old wives tales that stick around. So umami, like the other four, is the sensation or the taste of savoriness. I think as the base level, would you agree? Yeah, I, I agree. And you're right. I mean, I remember in elementary school in California taking pipette droppers and dropping like did you, you know take this 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 sugar solution and drop it on this part of your tongue because that's the part of your tongue that tastes yeah sweet and of course we, yeah. we, how i mean i i'm not that old <laughs> and this was <laughs> this was science you know back then and of course T- tongue maps so much maps. of it yeah, has so what- gone down the drain but yeah it's a lot, a lot a lot has changed some of that stuff is still pervasive you'll still find tongue maps in in biology classrooms across america but um we'll get to that in a second so the reason that the the original four, as I write my notes, the OG four tastes sort of came about or our understanding of them so fast is because they had real world implications for our prehistoric ancestors. So the sense of sweetness that our tongue picked up on was key because sweetness in the past or now as well uh, shows a abundance of calories saltiness. We need salt to survive and keep us upright. Otherwise we die sourness in nature shows a, a presence of vitamins uh, and bitter bitterness is an interesting one. Bitterness. We dro- we developed the, the ability to, to taste uh, because most poisons and, and then specifically uh, poisonous food in the wild, as well as real poisons uh, we've made are, are bitter. And this is why anthropogenic anthrop- – I can't even say that word. Uh, historically for humans, uh, uh, kids don't like bitter things. It's because their bodies are trained to dislike things that are, are bitter because you don't want kids at age five wandering around and picking up things that are bitter and liking them mm-hmm. because – then they're going to go drink battery acid and you know die. Uh, so that's why kids only get into coffee and dark chocolate when they when they you know get a four hundred one k, and that's when they enjoy it. So you know that's that's a good thing. Uh, and then umami is the last one, and it makes sense. Like umami, the umami allows you to realize that there's protein there, and because a lot of uh, umami heavy foods are high in protein and we need protein obviously to build muscle and, and survive, um, you know, the saber tooth tiger that was chasing after us. So we know that the pre the Neanderthals would have been able to taste this. I don't know why it took us until the turn of the last century for us to identify it as a chemical po- compound, but real quick to the, to the tongue map thing. Um, yeah, we were taught that your tongue tasted sweet on the front, salty and sour on the sides and bitter on the back. And you perfectly summarized that, you know, at whatever backward school you were going to at the time, they were making you drop pipettes onto your tongue. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, you know, I, I never learned about umami, uh, until, I don't know, it was in my 20s or 30s. and But the thing is, is that the concept was codified, if you will, over 100 years ago. I, so I, I, I think I have a theory about why this is, and we, we'll get onto that in a second. But I, I just think it's interesting because it, it was 
it was codified by this this chemist in Japan. Yeah, so by Kakune Ikeda. Yeah, Ikeda. Yeah. Ikeda at the Tokyo um, Imperial University, um, and he was having a bowl of something that had uh, a number of very umami items in it, and he thought it was even more flavorsome than normal. And uh, what he found out was that there was more um, kombu in it than normal. And kombu is uh, a kind of seaweed that is very heavy in, uh, in umami. And so he realized, okay, well, there must be something interesting about kombu. So then he spent the next few years uh, working on that. And uh, he basically identified uh, you know, glutamates, which are the, the, the base ingredient uh, or the base uh, chemical compound that our body and our tongue receptors uh, react to. And uh, glutamates, which you'll know as the G in, in MSG, which we'll get onto in a bit, uh, he was able to extract and synthesize. Uh, but jumping back real quick to the tongue thing, uh, your tongue is completely covered in, in multiple different taste sensors, and each one has a specific role. So rather than the different areas of the tongue being salt, sweet, blah, 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 um, you'll have a salt receptor, a sweet receptor, a umami receptor, blah, blah, and et cetera, et cetera. The thing that your umami receptor is reacting to is glutamate or glutamate acid. And that is what tells the brain, mm, this is savory. And that is what uh, they discovered in 1908 at, at the Tokyo Imperial University was this ethereal compound. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he isolated those flavors, which was uh, uh, the result of which was, was monosodium glutamate, which was, which was this compound of, of salt, a sodium. Well, actually, that's not, that's not fair. It's not salt. It's sodium. And this, this amino acid glutamate. And he, he was able to then kind of, well, he synthesized it essentially. And mm -hmm. he... Using wheat. He was, he basically thought, holy cow, this is, this is going to be, this is revolutionary. Not because it makes, not just because it makes f food taste better in many regards, but uh, that was actually very important. He's, this, he's like, this could help Japan in a time where our national diet is not, is not great. And a lot of people are, are not getting the, the, the nutrition that they need. He thought, uh, that if a lot of highly nutritious food tasted bland, so people were avoiding it and going for things that were that were not nearly as good for them, all they had to do was add a little bit of MSG and make it make it delicious. So, and as a result, much of Jap Japanese food is now built on this principle: dashi, miso, soy sauce, all contain a large amount of glutamates and MSG naturally, naturally, naturally exactly naturally occurring glutamate, but MSG just concentrates that flavor into a form that can be then applied to anything uh, as well. Unfortunately, when, and obviously, you know, this is, this is, you know, you go into any home in, in Asia, not just Japan, and there will be packets of white powder uh, all in every kitchen and every pantry in Japan and Asia that is monosodium glutamate is added liberally to to most savory dishes. When the concept was exported to the U.S., it didn't quite go to plan. I think everybody knows that there's been some bad – there was bad press probably. It started in 1960 right as the Chinese – uh, food revolution started happening on the coasts. Obviously, Chinatowns had existed in San Francisco and New York for 
much longer than that. But the 60s is when people started actually like, oh, let's go try these things with these wood sticks. Um, and like, you know, main Chinese food sort of expanded across America. And people started complaining of a number of different symptoms, but most important, most prevalently headaches, flushing, sweating, heart palpitations, and nausea. And it was known as amongst, there were some very un PC terms for what this affliction was that referenced the Asian community, but it was just known as the MSG sweat. So the MSG yeah, or fever. Chinese restaurant syndrome, because there was exactly, it was, it was kind of brought to light as a thing in this 1968 letter published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it was this, yeah, Chinese restaurant syndrome, which was this illness allegedly brought on by the consumption of MSG, which was was commonly used in, in Chinese restaurants. And it's been vilified ever since. What Mr. Ikeda's dream was that we, it would be as it, his dream was that in America, we would do what we, they do in Asia, which is we'd have it next to our salt and our pepper and our cabinets, and we would add it to and our- caster. Unfortunately, what, what, what happened in the US is that it was weaponized by the, the food industrial complex, if you will. And I love this quote. There was an article on, on Quartz, I don't know who wrote it, that Americans aren't eating steamed vegetables in a broth made powerfully delicious by a bit of MSG, as Ikeda intended, but been weaponized by the food industry to flavor cheap piles of cheap corn and, and cheap wheat into snacks we down by the fistful so much so that they've taken to ca- categorizing these high-calorie, low-nutrition foods as addictive substances. MSG is a convenient and culturally loaded scapegoat for overindulgence and a distraction from the real problem. This, this, th- there, I mean, I'm just going to say it out now. MSG is not bad for you. There is not a shred of scientific evidence, despite a number of studies that have wasted so much of the scientific community's time to disprove it otherwise. It does nothing. It literally does nothing. It's salt and an amino acid that is naturally occurring in most flavorful foods. But it has been completely ruined by one letter written 50 years ago by some douchebag. I know I 100% agree. It, it, in the articles and research I was reading was that it's been, and there's a variation on MSG, um, monosodium potassiumate or something like that. Or there's a variation on, on it as well that they also have been throwing into high fructose corn syrup, um, low nutritious value uh, dishes that they just want to make as as munchable as possible and so you are basically not sugar coating you are msg coating um the 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 poor crap of this stuff and so it's not the msg that's bad for you it is the fact that it's high fructose corn syrup or that it is a thousand milligrams of sugar or a thousand milligrams of salt or whatever it might be that is the really bad thing for you and you're scapegoating you know someone from a hundred years ago yeah yeah and i i i think that there's a there's a very dangerous undertone here which it's incredible to me it's taken 50 years for us to get over that everybody has gone to its defense every every respectable person jeffrey steingarten has written this wonderful evisceration of of anti-msg sentiment the New York Times, Epicurious, Bon Appetit, constantly go to, to his defense. David Chang is probably the most vocal supporter of, of MSG and also the largest proponent uh, of this this, 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 this idea that – well, I'll, I'll quote Anthony Bourdain here in a 2016 episode of Parts Unknown. You know what causes Chinese restaurant syndrome? Racism. Yeah. 
David Chang in 2012 did a did a, a, a MAD a MAD conference talk about this, and he paints a he paints a pretty damning uh, support of this. And I think he's absolutely. In fact, in Ugly Delicious, there's this wonderfully hilarious bit where he brings in people off the street, clearly don't know who, who he are, and then they've all answered this, responded to the survey: Does MSG give you headaches or give you sweats? And they're mm-hmm. they're he's sitting there with I think he's sitting there with Harold McGee. Yes. Yeah, I, I remember this episode. It, with, with Harold McGee, the, the wonderful uh, food writer and science, food scientist. And he said, um, they're like, oh, what happens? And like, oh, I get these pounding headaches and I can't sleep and my heart's, you know, running like crazy and I'm sweating. And they're like, oh, this is interesting. He's like, oh, we've, we've put some snacks in the back for you guys if you're, if you're hungry. And they're chowing him down. And then halfway through, David Chang is like, I can't do this anymore. Dude that's eaten half a bag of Doritos. You know that's got more MSG than most Chinese restaurant dishes, right? He's like, I didn't know that. And then like, hey, lady eating the so-and-so, you know that's that's loaded with MSG. Ranch dressing, loaded with MSG. And then like it pans back and the guy eating the Doritos goes, oh, actually, I'm starting to get a little bit of a headache. <laughs> and David Chang is like, just looks at the camera. It was embarrassing. And it's... You know, there's this there's this strong thread of kind of racist and and race related associations with something negative. It's it's really bizarre when you think about it in those terms. It's uh, it's kind of like you know, <laughs> corn is such a protected thing here because it's the backbone of American industry. But no, it can't be the corn syrup that's making us sick. It's got to be all this other shit that's making us sick. That's not going to affect our gross domestic product. So, you know, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I think that what's most telling is that, as we mentioned, you know, umami or the glutamates uh, that make up umami are, are found everywhere in, in, in nature and everywhere in, in certain foods and MSG in its original form, you know, it's just a distilled version of that. So it would, it would be, it stands to reason that if MSG was bad for you, so should these other things be bad for you that originally contain MSG. And so I'll also run through some foods that are high in, in uh, umami are dashi, miso, uh, soy, which we talked about, uh, mushrooms, red meats, cheese, red wine, shellfish, dark greens, tomatoes. The things that are going to make you sick or get heart problems or whatever from those dishes are not glutamates. It's the fat content. It's nothing to do with like, you know, with red meat or cheese It's al- uh, or, or, or red wine. It's the alcohol. Those are all incredibly high in glutamates and they give you that savory, you know, proteiny, you know, brothy flavor that that's what is indicative of of, of umami, which literally translates from and the word, the, the etymology is my means delicious and um, me means uh, taste. And so, but generally it comes to pleasant, savory taste is umami. It's a, it's a portmanteau, I guess. Um, and those items I just mentioned all give you that sense of earthiness is a word that doesn't really make sense, but it kind of like, Unctuousness, I guess, is the better word. Yeah, it's it is quite difficult to describe. I mean, how do you how do you describe sweet? How do you describe sour? Um, yeah, but it's it, you know when when you describe those things, you know if you if you consider some of the ingredients that we have in 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 common dishes that are as you've put in our notes here, and I think I've mentioned it. Actually, Kenji Lopez out mentions it in the food lab. Umami bombs, marmite is such a great example of mm-hmm. of umami soy sauce. Perfect. 
mm-hmm. example of umami. Miso soup is a perfect example because it has three different kinds of glutamate in there. I mean, miso itself, uh, then you have uh, often you have bonito flakes in there, uh, which are very umami. And then you've got um, it's made with kombu, which is the original thing that they figured this out from. Yeah, it's uh, so, you know. Meats, anything with a meat sauce, anything with with cheese, beef, and mushroom stew. Think about things like that. How they taste. Those are those are all wonderful things. And and you know, not to pick at the scab anymore, but think about all of the things that we've just answered. What if MSG was actually bad for you? Then, as Jeffrey Steingarten said, why doesn't all of China have a permanent headache? Exactly. So I I think you know I would actually encourage you to go out and get some MSG as a flavoring compound. Learn how to use it to add to to your to your savory dishes because it can really take some extraordinary flavor levels to to most savory dishes. Yeah, it, it turns it to eleven. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's funny because in in when I used to live in Berkeley uh, last year, there was a fantastic Mexican supermarket that I was my usual supermarket that I would go to, and they had their spice section. It's, you know, finding a do like finding chipotles and an adobo sauce at Whole Foods surprisingly hard, um, but I could get it there every time. And so I always used to go there for my more um, Hispanic food items, and they had this thing there called. Peruvian super spice mm. and almost like is that anything like Colombian marching powder it was a white powder so I was like what does this do and I turned it around and it said 100% MSG and so other cultures have their own version of this and they're marketing it differently but I always remember that and be like oh okay that, that makes sense yeah it, it's uh, it's it's worth exploring I think in whatever form you can find it but it's and learn how to use it of course because if you add too much because it is that sodium flavor that uh, or the sodium part of the whole thing you know it will change the flavor of what you add it to there's a there's a saltiness in in a way that that becomes more prevalent and of course salt is a great ha- flavor enhancer that's why monosodium glutamate and sodium dichloride sodium dichloride salt mm-hmm. uh are the you know uh, birds of the same feather if you will so learn how to use it sodium chloride not dichloride i wonder what sodium dichloride yeah i was at a <clears throat> i was at a steak restaurant in seattle on wednesday and uh they had a list uh they had a, a um what's the word i'm looking for like a, a, a three-tiered stand with three different kinds of salt there was like your typical whole like uh uh, high flake uh, sea salt. Then you had this one that the guy described as slightly buttery, and then there was your one that you'll find quite frequently the uh, the Hawaiian black salt. And they all have different flavors. Here's the thing: they are used to like to take a little bit and amplify the flavor of the steak or whatever else you're having. MSG is meant to be used in the same way. Mm-hmm. If you put like the way that people are using MSG in commercial uses with salt. We're going to have an obesity problem or we're going to have a, you know, because you're going to eat too much of it. And we do. And that's, you know, the problem. You can't blame it for how it's being misused. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's such a, there's, and the only silver lining to the whole MSG debate, and it's important, I think, not to let MSG cloud Umami's reputation. Because I think, I think we've all recognized umami is a wonderful thing and and a thing and msg is finally turning the corner but because of this of this the shadow that it's coming out from under there's so much wonderful writing about it like i like some of the people that we mentioned jeffrey steingarten harold mcgee again this was not a hard episode to research no david chang again has has done so much good 
work about it, uh, uh, and it's all over in, in many forms, even Instagram posts and um, speeches and things like that. And there's a great article in the New Yorker called "An MSG Convert Visits the High Church of Umami" by Helen Rosner, who I don't always agree with, but this this article from uh, about a year ago is is just great. It's really really well written, as so much of her stuff is. I, I agree. Um... And I think we've spent a, a decent – a significant amount of time specifically on on MSG just because it is the elephant in the room. But umami as itself is is present in so many different foods. It is a it is one of the basic five uh, flavor groups. Um, and so I want to sort of circle back around to that. Like w- there are so many things that are high in, in umami that are not associated with the – of MSG. And so my one of the ones I wrote in, in the notes, which I think for me probably is the, the biggest MSG flavor bomb, uh, which was weaponized in England and in America is spag bowl. Yes. Spaghetti and bolognese does not exist in Italy. It is, does not – you do not get meat sauces with with thin spaghetti because that's dumb. You meant to use big tubes because it then captures the, uh, the the sauce better. It was weaponized in the UK. And again, the the, the, the food program, the VC food program did a fantastic episode on Spag Bowl uh, a few months ago. And they talked about how America and, and, and Britain specifically uh, did more to amplify than anything else. But you got red meat. You got tomatoes. You got Parmesan cheese and you're often drinking with red wine. All of those are some of the most umami things you can come across. And it is Americans and British people that are consuming it more than anyone else on earth by a long shot. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, uh, while the Italians may not eat spag bowl, they do eat ragu. Well, they, 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 yeah. They, ragu bolognese is a thing, but they use um, uh, more tubular. Um, uh, I can't say that word without thinking bells. I just, I, <laughs> <laughs> that um, yeah, exactly. Um, they're more like rigatoni style. Yeah, they're all there. I, th- I think every every decent um, ragu or meat sauce has those wonderful umami flavors. And I've, in fact, Kenji's recipe in the food lab is, I think, where I first heard the expression umami bomb. And he's talking about he as, as marmite as one. And I now always add marmite to my to my meat sauce or ragu yeah and vegemite and and bovril and all these it stands to reason like these things were invented as a byproduct of the beer making process well some of them were bovril wasn't bovril was invented uh because they couldn't ship beef from argentina to their market and so they just boiled them all down and but again it's the same, same thing like the the concept of reducing something down into an amami bomb the size of a um, you know, a, a pair of dyes is is they were used to get protein and iron into people that were not going to be able to get that through rationing or or through the industrial revolution. So there's been this long anthropological. There's the word I was looking for earlier. Need for umami. It just took a while for us to to get it. And I will say that there's a great article on how Escoffier knew about it and balanced it out into his meals, but never really thought about it. Again, he thought it was more of a blending of all the other four to make this like, you know, saltiness plus bitterness made savoriness or something like that. So we've known about it for thousands of years. Like I mentioned, our Neanderthal uh, forebearers would need it to get protein. But the fact that it took until 120 odd years ago for us to be like, oh, we should probably write down what this is. Uh, and then <laughs> 60 years of endemic uh, 
scaremongering later. We're finally coming out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least we're fine. We are coming out of it. And you now have all this wonderful stuff available to you. So go and try to add some umami bombs to the, to the dishes that you create and get some MSG. Yeah. Let us put it in your coffee. Yeah. Let us know. <laughs> it's probably, probably people do that. Let us know what your favorite umami dish is. And you may need to think about it because something that you're eating may not, you may be like, that's this just, this is a savory. I'm like, well, it's probably umami. Uh, and, and, and get back to us. Um, but the, the next episode is V. So I feel pretty good about V. I think we have a, a number of different things we could do for V. V. Uh, Vichy, <laughs> wine, Vichyssoise, uh, you know, Vianetta. Vianetta, that's it. Done. We're doing Vianetta. If you have any ideas, uh, get in touch. Do keep sending us the things you've been eating, what you've been discovering. If you happen to run into another listener at a brewery, uh, let us know. But until next time, eat well. All right. <laughs>